Hello, Ebenezer Church. Today's reading is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. My wife, Andy, was born about an hour outside of Pittsburgh. And like every other child that was born in western Pennsylvania, Andy emerged into this world clinging to her yellow and black terrible towel of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Andy and her whole family, rabid Steelers fans. I, on the other hand, grew up in northeast Ohio. And my tribe has always been Browns fans. Talk about being unequally yoked. Well, as I tell you this story, I want you to know I do so at great personal peril because of my wife's affinity for Pittsburgh. I know that many of you are fans of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And yet this past weekend, the wild card game of the NFL playoffs, the Cleveland Browns beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. If you're a Steelers fan, you can't get really too upset about this if you think about the history of this experience. Because last Sunday night, when the Browns finally beat the Steelers at Heinz Field, it was the first time in 17 games that the Browns had beaten the Steelers at Pittsburgh. 17 games they'd lost at that stadium in a row. Not to mention the fact this was the first time the Browns ever made it to the playoffs since like 2002. First time they'd won a playoff game since 1994. It's been over a quarter of a century since the Browns have won a playoff game. You might say, wait, I thought your people were fans of the Browns. This is actually how Browns fans talk about their team. It's just, there's something so interesting about being a fan. Especially if your team is not historically great. Those people that stick with it and stick to it. I wonder if there's ever been a time in your life you actually got to be there in person for your team. Maybe it was professional or, or college or high school or I don't know what the sport was, basketball or baseball or football. We have a friend in Denmark who's a huge fan of handball. I honestly had to YouTube it to even figure out what it was. Did you ever have a chance to be part of a crowd, cheering together, believing what your team could do? That's a powerful experience. But it's interesting that there are some times when the rivalries melt into the background in the face of a a tremendous individual achievement. I had a chance to witness that happen one time. It was October 3rd, 2012. 
My friend Bryson and I were in Kansas City attending a Christian leadership conference. And the evening session was optional. So we decided to putz around Kansas City and do what there was to do. And we discovered that that night was the last game of the regular season for the Kansas City Royals. Now, I like to go to the baseball park. I like the experience of going to the baseball park. I never really watched it on TV, but going to the park is a cool undertaking. So we we went to watch this baseball game. Last game of the regular season in 2012. I had no idea when we embarked on this little journey that I was about to watch history in the making. You see, 45 years prior to this, a man by the name of Karl Jastrzemski had clinched something called the Triple Crown in baseball. Triple Crown is when you have the highest batting average, highest number of home runs, and the highest number of runs batted in for a season. You lead all three categories. It's incredibly rare. It had been 45 years since that had happened. Well, that night, the Kansas City Royals were hosting the Detroit Tigers. And Detroit had a player by the name of Miguel Cabrera. Church, I really was just going for the hot dogs. I didn't know Miguel Cabrera that night would clinch the first triple crown in 45 years. And when he did, after he did it, they called timeout in the game. And the announcer called over the loudspeakers what had just happened. And you know, as soon as he did, the people in that arena, remember, this was an away game for Detroit. This wasn't a home game for them. Most of the people in the stands were Kansas City fans, but not in that moment. In that moment, there weren't Kansas City fans and Detroit fans. In that moment, everyone gathered around to cheer on this one man who had done something amazing. Once in a generation. In our passage from Hebrews today, Paul is using a metaphor from the realm of athletics. He's talking about a big crowd. He's talking about running a race. And in this passage, Paul talks to us about the great cloud of witnesses. He's talking about those who have gone before us in the faith, the faith of the past. It's a humbling, yet a powerful notion Paul conveys. He uses the word perikaminon to describe the great cloud of witnesses. Literally, what that means is we are encircled by those who have gone before us. Paul's saying that those who have borne witness continue to bear witness in our lives. And Paul's correct rendering would say not only are we surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses, but they are pulling for us, cheering for us. And then we, we might ask the question, if indeed we are surrounded, encircled by those who have gone before us, what is it that they would cheer us on toward in this life? Well, Paul gives us a hint. He says, because we're surrounded by the great crowd that's gone before us, he says, let us lay aside every weight. Think for a moment about the perspective 
of the great cloud of witnesses. The faithful who have passed on. They're no longer bound by the stresses that bind us. They don't have to make dinner every night. They don't have to navigate their children through school. They don't have to stress over a project at work. And all of this grants them a powerful perspective. And they use that perspective to say to us, let go of the weight. It's as if they have learned that so much of what we choose to carry isn't worth carrying. The anxiety, the stress, the worry. And when we take inventory and choose to focus on those things in our lives that truly matter, the caring for our children, the nurturing of our spouses, the call that God has placed on our lives. We focus on those things intentionally and consistently that truly matter. In that moment, the other things, those things that tend to weigh us down and hold us back, the things over which we exercise no control, the things that hurt us, when we focus on what we really matter, the weights of our lives become increasingly apparent and we can do what Paul and the great cloud of witnesses call us to do. The great cloud of witnesses would call us to set aside the weight of those things that aren't worthy of our energy. Those who have gone before us from their perspective would tell us to let go of those things we cannot control. Possessed by their tremendous perspective. They call on us to let it go and to lay it down. I want to pause here and just ask an honest question of all of us. Have you been carrying the weight of those things that you can't control? Like many of us have been. My friends, I have more to say today. But I wonder if, if we could just pause for a moment and pray together to our great God. For God's grace to let go of the weight. Would you pray with me? Father, you have called us to freedom. And you sent your Son that we might have abundant life, full life. And yet so often the vitality and the fullness of our lives is compromised by the weight of a thousand little burdens. The things we cannot control and frequently the things that just do not deserve our energy. Lord, today we ask for your focus. We ask for your clarity to help us see what is truly worthy. And in this moment, we ask for your grace to let everything else go. To set aside the weight because you have a journey worth taking in store for us. 
Help us to let it all go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first thing Paul tells us to do from the perspective of the great cloud of witnesses is to to put aside the weight. But then he also says, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that we should lay down the sin that so easily entangles us. One of the things the Bible teaches, specifically all throughout the early part of the book of Romans, is that the chief function of the law is that the law showed us our sin. So, it's important to note that when Jesus was asked what is the greatest law, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said the greatest law is the law of love, and therefore the violation of the great law means the greatest sin is when we fail to love. The root of so much sin in our lives is the failure in us to love, to love God, to love one another, and even to love ourselves. But if we are surrounded by this great cloud of witness is encircled by those who have gone before, what are they cheering us towards first? They're telling us to let go of all the weight we're carrying that we don't need to. And second... They're telling us to trade in our sin and pick up love. Of all the things they know, they know just as Christ shared that the milestones of our lives are marked by love. If the great commandments call us to love, the great sins emerge when we do not. Lay aside the weight. Trade in the sin for love. And finally, finally, Paul tells us to run the race that's been set before us. The metaphor that Paul uses here, this athletics metaphor, we're watching people run and we're watching people cheer And it begs the question, do you know what race God has set before you? Do you know what the big dream of God is for your life? Over the last few weeks, we've been sharing some dreams here at Ebenezer Church. Dreams about being a congregation that is more fully reflective of the communities around us in our diversity. Dreams about being a catalyst for the hope and healing of Jesus Christ to be shared with all the people in our community, in our neighborhood, across the world. Throughout this series, we've had Scripture as our guide and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as our lens through his book, Strength to Love. Well, this weekend, our nation celebrates the federal holiday in Dr. King's honor. On Friday, Dr. King would have turned 92 years old. But it was something something he did when he was only 34 that echoes so strongly 
throughout the ages. On August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered what would go down as one of the most important addresses of the 20th century. And in it, he talked about his dream. He talked about the race that God had called him to run. We must believe Dr. King is now among the great cloud of witnesses. And so on this special weekend, I invited some witnesses from here at Ebenezer to help share his dream once more with all of us. And as we listen, we'll note some of the things that Dr. King dreamed of have come to pass in the intervening years. We should give thanks to God for the strides that have been taken. But as we've discussed this this week, as we know, there is still work to do. So today we ask God's fortitude to keep striving towards a world of greater unity, of justice for all. Martin Luther King Jr. was running a race that was worth running. And the great cloud of witnesses calls us to do the same. My friends, this is Dr. King's dream. What is God's dream for your life? I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon of hope to millions of slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the colored America is still not free. 100 years later, the life of the colored American is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the colored American lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the colored American is still languishing in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. So we have come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given its colored people a bad check, a check that has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insignificant funds in the great vaults of opportunities of this nation. 
So we have come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is not time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality to all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment and to underestimate the determination of its colored citizens. This faltering summer of the colored people's legitimate discontent will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the colored Americans needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the colored citizen is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the colored person's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of your trials and tribulations. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom has left you battered by storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi, go back to Alabama, Go back to South Carolina, go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and the ghettos of our modern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you, my friends, we have the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day, out in the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, that one day, right down in Alabama, 
little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I will go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discord of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we'll be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to climb up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country taste of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom reign. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring from the hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the hackney Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-caked Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvious slopes of California. Not only that, let freedom ring from snow mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi and every mountainside. And when this happens and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. I want to thank everyone who helped make that experience happen. Thank you very much. My friends, those who have come before us, that great cloud of witnesses calls upon us today to lay aside the weight, to cast off the sin, to take up love and run a race worth running. It's a race not only for ourselves, but a race that orients us toward a world where all are free at last. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.